Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for June 24th, 2015. I'm Stuart Wills. Well, we're back on the air, finally, after a long hiatus and with an appropriately broad topic. Where can the scholarly publishing business find growth in the future? That was the focus of a session at the SSP annual meeting around a month ago, featuring financial consultant David Lamb and two familiar voices from the scholarly kitchen, Joe Esposito and Michael Clark. Michael is in the studio today to take us through some of the ideas bandied about at that SSP session. Michael, thanks for dropping in. Thanks for having me in, Stuart. Well, let's start with the premise of this entire discussion, that basically publishers have reached kind of the end of the line with respect to their uh, traditional growth avenues. Could you sketch out the scenario uh, that you see publishers are in right now? Sure. Really, I, th I think of it in terms of looking at the last 15 years in the SDM and scholarly publishing industry and what publishers have largely been occupied with over, over that time period. And it really comes down to two things. One of those things is pricing and package optimization. And, and by that, I mean, of course, the big deal and the site license. And the other thing is market expansion, by which I mean uh, expanding of sales activities, selling the big deal and in, in site licenses to the far corners of the earth, to, uh, to China and India and South America and the Middle East. And really, these two activities have accounted for all the growth in the industry over the last decade and a half since since academic press uh, first launched the big deal in, in I believe, 1998. Now, it's been phenomenally successful in terms of, of both revenue it's it's produced for publishers, but also the, the access that um, it's, it's provided for thousands and thousands of, of people at institutions who, who previously either didn't have access or had to, you know, trudge over to the, to the library to look at print copies. Hobbies. Phenomenally successful, but, you know, that's a sort of a victim of its own success. It's a victim of its own success. Now, I don't think it's going away, the big deal, but I, I suspect that given where library budgets are at and given that there's really no more market to grow into, you know, everybody has been busy with international expansion and, and uh, again, are victims of their own success just because they're, you know, they're not making um, new universities and, and hospitals <laughs> and so forth at the, at the pace it would take to kind of sustain the last uh, 15 years of growth. So there's really only, you know, if you think about it generically, only, only really three ways to grow a business of, of any kind. One is to increase prices. The other is to sell your products to more or different people. And the third is to sell new products and services. So, you know, the industry is, has gone through the kind of price optimization and tiering and, and packaging and so forth. And it's gone through selling to, to more people through international expansion. That leaves selling new, new products and services. Okay. And within that sort of framework of selling new products and services, you detailed a number of specific uh, ideas. You talked about reestablishing an individual end-user market. Uh, you talked about developing new business models. You talked about new product development. Let's drill down into the first one of those, the, the kind of establishment of, a, of an end-user market after, after this long period, as you described, of focusing on the institution, the big deal, the site license. So how does it work to establish this, this end-user market? 
first, let's talk a little bit about the, the history of this. I, I was um, reading a article in uh, Learned Publishing uh, last month, actually, by um, Don King and, and Carol Tenefer. And King and Tenefer have been conducting uh, research over uh, decades, really going back all the way to the um, early 1970s, maybe in the late 60s on the reading habits of professionals, uh, largely academics, but other, other kinds of professionals as well, and documenting the changes in reading habits over, um, over a period of time. And let me just read a brief passage from that, that paper. Quote, the percentage of article readings obtained through personal subscriptions has been decreasing since 1977. Articles obtained from personal subscriptions decreased from 60% in 1977 to 53% in 1984, down to 35% by the early 1990s. This decline has continued. Only 18% of article readings in 2012 are from personal subscriptions, end quote. And so that's not really going to change. It is a long-term trend. I suspect uh, that that trend has been accelerated by site licensing and the big deal. Now, you know, you used to have a personal subscription, but you can get it through your institution's um, account. So why would you have a personal subscription anymore? King and Tenefer, of course, are, are documenting readings. They're, they're not actually tracking subscriptions. But um, if you talk to publishers, their, their subscription <laughs> records will corroborate that, that right. um, uh, subscription, personal subscriptions have, have certainly fallen. Now, that said, to call it an individual market, and I, and I use that term, I use that term in my presentation, you know, I don't know, and I don't know that anybody knows exactly how where the money came from for these individual subscriptions. In other words, how many of them were out of personal paychecks versus how many of them were paid for out of department funds, mm-hmm. and now that's all shifted to the to the library. But certainly, there has been a long term trend, and in the past, there were substantially more individual subscriptions from from one source of funding or or another. So when we talk about a the reemergence of an end user market we're we're presumably talking about something different from subscriptions exactly and and I think that's an important point um you know i I don't think uh, I don't know anybody out there that thinks that there's going to be a reemergence of a uh, individual market for journal subscriptions that 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 trend is somehow gonna reverse itself so here we're really talking about products and services that are different from things that we've had in the past and and maybe from from things that we have uh, right now but that would be paid for by individuals um, or it could be you know as before perhaps some department funds would be be used um, or directed by individuals at the very least and so what are those those products and services what are the classes of things that that individuals might be interested in in, in this market well let me give you just a few examples of, of things that are out there now one of them are author services, of which there are a big range. This is help with writing or editing research papers or figure editing um, and, and that sort of thing. Some examples of organizations doing that, of course, there's a, there's a lot of organizations in, in this particular space. American Journal Experts is one. Um, uh, Editage is another. There, there are many others. Then there are a growing group of peer review services, Axios Review is is one example of this. Rubric, which is a division of American Journal Experts, is is another. 
And then there, there are other digital products that serve various needs of individuals. Figshare um, is one example. Uh, they also have an institutional pricing model, but the individuals are the, the primary customer. And that, that's a place where researchers can store their data. Papers is an uh, example that's been around for um, a number of years, which is a um, document management software program that now it's owned by, um, I think, Springer acquired it a few years ago. A relatively new one is Overleaf, uh, which is an authoring system, and there's a, a whole raft of uh, authoring systems coming on the, on the market this year. ReadCube is another uh, document management system uh, f- that's um, part of digital science. And then you see things as, as is Overleaf and Figshare, right? Digital science is doing a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in this area. They, now they are interestingly, all of these, um, all three of those organizations were started independently. They, mm-hmm. they were um, things that digital science has taken a stake in. I'm not aware of um, exactly how much ownership oh, I they see. have. I, I think some, a couple of them are still mostly independent. I see. Uh, but yes, they are, they're all part of the um, growing digital science uh, uh, collective. Then there, there are things like uh, New England Journal of Medicine's um, Knowledge Plus, which is a maintenance certification mm-hmm. product. And things like uh, JSTOR has a uh, individual um, subscription um, available to, to people not affiliated with an uh, institution, which they call JPASS. So there's a lot of examples. I mean, this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg, but mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of activity in this space right now. Okay, well, let's jump ahead then to a few of the other engines of growth that you identified at SSP. Uh, the second one, I think, was the development of, of new business models. Can you take us through some of some of what's going on there? Sure. Um, I think one of the most obvious ones, which isn't new, it's been around for a while, but it's relatively new uh, compared to the subscription, which has been with us for 350-odd years, <laughs> Um so gold open access is is one new business model and in in a way it's it's kind of a individual product uh, at least in the sense that individuals are directing the um the funds for article processing charges mm-hmm. yeah they're certainly nominally paying for it at least yes and and then there are even even within the context of gold oa there are some interesting i'll call them experiments some interesting um Things going on under the gold OA umbrella. One one of them is charging more or less for various licensing options, meaning the um, uh, Creative Commons mm-hmm. uh, licensing. So organizations like American Chemical Society, um, AAAS, and, and and others will have different levels of APC depending on what kind of um, license you want. There's also, and this this has been um, again not. Not new, but relatively new um, institutional memberships within the um, within the context of gold open access, and perhaps this is is leading to a uh, OA big deal, um, <laughs> if you will. And and you know, let's let's talk ironic. Yeah, <laughs> no, for real. Um, and and interestingly, we're even being able, we're even starting to see instances where the big deal and the gold OA big deal are merging. Oh wow. Um, so the uh, association of university in the Netherlands has has been um, noisily negotiating with some of the some of the larger publishers, uh, Springer and um, 
and, and Elsevier. And what they're trying to do is have both their access to the subscription journals from these publishers, um, as well as uh, APCs related to open access uh, publication for their researchers negotiated mm-hmm. and paid for under the rubric of one contract. So what are some other business models that are emerging here? New, uh, new, you know, comparatively yeah. new business models. Freemium uh, is is another interesting one, and mm-hmm. uh, you could look at what uh, OECD in Paris is doing uh, with regard to their um, economics mm-hmm. data and um, the, the the information which they make uh, available. I think just about all their their data is um, uh, open access. That said. They have, uh, again, different levels of mm-hmm. access depending on what you uh, want to do with the data in terms of being able to you know, download and manipulate versus simply being able to, to, to see it. Um, so freemium is one. And we're seeing some things like uh, traffic referral recommendation business models. Um, what is that? It's been pioneered generally by a company called uh, Outbrain, uh, which is not um, – not in this this space in in which what happens is if you're reading you know something like slate you know and you get down to the bottom and it's like well you can see these other you might also be interested in these other brought to you by the internet these other (laughs) these other articles well somebody's paying for those recommendations Mm -hmm. um and then the and then whoever is is doing the referring um gets paid and and outbrain takes a, a percentage of that deal. Well we're starting to see that in in um STM and Scholarly Publishing through a company called Trend MD that is um uh developed that recommendation engine and it's starting to work with um different organizations in terms of uh, creating those those recommendations. Advertising of course is is par- been part of the landscape uh at least on the medical side for a while but it's you know beginning to get more sophisticated. Medscape is probably the most sophisticated there in terms of mm-hmm. um targeted advertising. Um and then we're starting to see analytics as a discrete business model. And here there are organizations like Sciencescape which recently announced uh that they have a uh a new product around predictive analytics, which mm-hmm. is to say um, helping publishers try to predict the future citations to a, to a <laughs> given article. Okay. There is a PRE, part of uh, Journal Bone and Joint Surgery, that is has some analytics around uh, peer review. Um, and then my favorite example actually isn't from uh, the STM space, but you could imagine applicability, uh, which is Shazam, which is the the app on your phone that tells you what the music is ah. that you're listening to. Mm-hmm. And what I always thought they made money on was a uh, finder's fee, to, so to speak, from, from iTunes or Google mm-hmm. Play or whatever. And, I, and I'm sure they probably do make money from that. But where most of their money comes from is actually as a um, early warning system to um, uh, record companies and bands themselves. So they'll be able to tell a band, for example, you know, who's where your music is popular because that's where you might want to tour this summer, right? You want to go to where your fans are. Um, Or a record company scout, you know, you might say, okay, here is some music that's becoming very popular that's not yet signed to a hmm. to a uh, major label that you might want to might want to talk to. Hmm. How would you envision that being used in uh, 
in scholarly communication. Well, that that will that, that will take a a mind <laughs> greater than mine to, to to apply. Well, it is an interesting idea. I mean, one thing you haven't talked about is data curation and and services built around data, um, which is something that people always seem to vaguely at least think is a business opportunity for publishers. Is that a business opportunity for publishers? Well, it, you know, it, it is uh, in some cases. Now, I, I like to say that um, data analytics is the new advertising. And <laughs> what, what, what I mean by that is, you know, there's a period of time four or five years ago when you would you would talk to startups and their business model would be, well, we'll get a bunch of traffic and then there will be advertising and, you know, then we'll make millions of dollars and sell the company. And as it turns out, uh, it's actually very hard to make money from advertising on the Internet or at least any 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 real money. But you can and and people do. Um, and, I, and I think data analytics is kind of like that. Now you're starting to hear a lot of startups like, well, we're just going to gather a bunch of data and then we're going to sell it and make a million dollars to sell a company. Mm-hmm. And it's not like most things as easy as it sounds. Mm-hmm. That said, there are some organizations that are very successful um, at doing that. One that um, comes to mind is uh, American College of Cardiology. Um, and they have what they call the National Cardiovascular Data Registry, which is a um, vast database of outcomes data in, in cardiology, um, around cardiology outcomes, which you know has, has all kinds of uses to all kinds of different organizations, and, and they, they license those data, um, and uh, it's a very, very successful um, uh, product. And then, of course, we're, we're, you know, there are organizations out there like Figshare, which we already mentioned, Dryad, and, and so forth, um, that are um, data repositories um, that, are, that are doing well. You know, so it's, it's happening, but it is it's a, I, one, one of those things that if, if you get it right, um, it can be extraordinarily successful, but it's, it's certainly not easy to get it right. Mm-hmm. One thing I was struck by in some uh, recent discussion was the notion that there might be a, a very significant untapped opportunity for publishers in serving the needs not just of researchers, but of research funders. Uh, how big is that opportunity, and how do you think publishers might work in that space? You know, I, I don't have off the top of my head a sense of how big the opportunity is in, in terms of, you know, what the market for, you know, information that funders might purchase is, but um, funders spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I, I would imagine that uh, intelligence products that will help them spend that money more wisely mm-hmm. uh, will be well received and, and could be quite valuable. And certainly there's a few out there. You know, Elsevier has SciVal and Digital Science, uh, who we've mentioned several times, um, has a, a company called Uber Research that um, has a lot of uh, funding data mm-hmm. um, and are. Uh, working actively with um, uh, funders. So it's, it is uh, what I call an emerging market, um, but one that I agree is, is um, worth watching. So one other growth area uh, that publishers, some publishers have been, have been uh, exploiting or growth avenue is, of course, M&A. You mentioned this at, at SSP. We've seen some rather significant merger announcements in the few years. Is this, you know, how much longer can this kind of consolidation run? And at what point, you know, do, do, does the 
you know, do you start reaching and diminishing returns on these? You know, the mer- the mergers among larger uh, organizations um, in in STM and scholarly publishing have been going on for some time. If you think back to, you know, everything from Wiley and Blackwell merging some years ago, Taylor and Francis and Informa. Um, of course, most recently there was Macmillan and Springer, but it goes all the way back to, you know, Elsevier's uh, acquisition of Perbingen Press and Cell Press and Harcourt and Academic Press and Walters Kluwer, of course, um, acquired um, Lippincott and Ravens Press and Mm-hmm. Williams and Wilkins, and and you know, so this this goes back um, some time. I do think though that we're reaching a kind of end game, just given the library budgets are mostly flat, or at least not growing as they have in the past. And beyond that, um, you know, there's just not as many um, independent publishers out there. So I'm sure there will continue to be some M&A activity in this vein for some time, but my guess is it's going to be uh, slower than, than, it, than it has been. That said, there, there's all kinds of M&A activity. In fact, during our session at uh, SSP, there was a, a heated debate at the end about M&A and, and whether it was a good thing or, or a bad thing uh, for, for the industry. And the comments from folks that thought it was a bad thing were mainly talking about these kind of mega deals. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, M&A is just a tool, um, and it can be used by organizations of all sizes, uh, including not-for-profit organizations um, who are thinking about or making build versus buy decisions. And, you know, they might say, okay, well, this is an area I want to get into, and if we, mm-hmm. you know, bought this um, smaller organization or this, this digital product from another organization that, um, you know, they're looking to divest, you know, we might be able to get where we're going faster or acquire some expertise we don't have or some technology we don't have. So, you know, I, 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 when, when people think of M&A, I think in a lot of cases they're thinking of big deals, but it's, it's really just a tool that can be used at just about any scale. Including giving, uh, giving some organizations the scope and to play, to play in some of these other areas you were talking about. Well, absolutely. Well, Michael, thanks very much. Thank you, Stuart. And thank you for dropping into the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for June 24th, 2015. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the scholarly publishing world. You can also comment on the podcast episode on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from the Optical Society. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the Scholarly Kitchen, bon appétit.